Romans chapter 8. This is part 8 of an eight-part series on freedom. For those of you who haven't been with us, we've been talking about how freedom is a quality inside of us. It is not simply about the getting rid of constraints from the outside of us, but there are there's something about inside of us that is deeply enslaved and uh, very guilt-ridden and very controlled. And we talked about it in various ways how we, could, how we can learn to have freedom in the way we handle money, the way we look at relationships, the way we think about status, the way even we think about our sense of obligation and duty that comes from culture. And that's especially a big issue in Asian American cultures. Um, but today we're going to culminate this series called Tree Freedom out of a very important text in, in Romans chapter, one, chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. It's a deeply penetrating text. And Paul talks in ways that are not that easy to understand here, and I hope that I could uh, explicate this well for you. Um, he's always, he does have kind of tricky ways of talking, but this is a particularly tricky way of talking, for, even for Paul in Romans 8. And so I hope you're there. Let me read this passage. This is the word of God. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. But if, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you, Anyone who does not have the Spirit of God does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. May the Lord bless the reading of His Word. Let me pray for message. Lord, how, how we need to know that there is a new law over us, a new reign over us. And how we must learn what it means that your Spirit indwells us, and that we live in the Spirit and not in our flesh. That we live in a freedom given by the Spirit and not a freedom of our own making. And so, Lord, I pray that we would receive this good news and it would do a great and glorious thing in us that would be filled with the goodness of God. 
cross in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me start with a quote. This comes from um, a book called Counterfeit Gods, written by Timothy Keller. And uh, he says this. He's talking about idolatry. If God will not be your Lord, something has to be your Lord. Something will control you. Something will shape you. Something will shape and control the meaning of your life. And if that's the case, it will be some kind of idol. And he says this. When idolatry is mapped onto the future, when our idols are threatened, it leads to paralyzing fear and anxiety. So he's saying is, if you have an idol, and if you're thinking something about, you're concerned about your future, then it will produce fear and anxiety in you. He says, if idolatry is mapped onto the present life, when your idols are blocked or removed by your present circumstances, then it will produce anger and despair. Are you guys feeling some anger, some despair in your present life? And there may be an idol, that's what he's saying. And then he goes to the past. When idolatry is mapped onto the past, when we fail whatever rules your life, this idol, then you know what the result is? He says it leads to irremediable guilt. A guilt that you have no remedy for. It will lead to irremediable guilt. And that's what I'd like to talk about today. This issue of how we have irremediable guilt in our life. Now let me cite somebody else. I recently read a very, I think, brilliant essay. And it was published in a journal that I like to read called First Things. And it was written by a professor named William McClay. And William McClay is, he has an endowed chair of humanities at the University of Tennessee. And he wrote a very brilliant and insightful essay called The Moral Economy of Guilt. That's what he called it, The Moral Economy of Guilt. And you guys watch the news and you hear about economy it's all, in, all the time. And most of the time, economy is talking about money. And when we use that word, we're talking about one guy buys one product and then that money goes from one person to another and then it goes out and has all these different effects. And when you kind of multiply millions of people exchanging money it has, there's a certain economy that is produced. Sometimes it's a good economy, sometimes it's a bad economy. But William McClay says there isn't just an economy of money, there's actually an economy of the way we trade and go forth in guilt. Guilt, there's an economy too. It's a very interesting way of putting it. And in this essay, he says that he noticed that there are two things that are going on in our culture and our time today Two things which don't seem to make any sense. They seem to be the very opposite of each other, but they go together, he thinks, because of the way we think today. And they both have this issue about the economy of guilt. And here are the two things. Number one, he says, in our time, there is this thing that we, we believe in what he calls the unreality of guilt. The unreality of guilt. And what does he mean by that? What he means is this. That our society, and this isn't just America, we're talking about Europe, the Western world, has very much been influenced by this guy, Sigmund Freud. You ever heard of him? And Freud has cast a great shadow over our culture. And in our culture, we're very much interested in, you know, he has, he has influenced psychology, 
He's influenced therapy. And in our society, over the last, I don't know, 50, 100 years or so, people have increasingly, they don't believe in guilt. Right? They don't believe guilt is real. <laughs> That's what he means by guilt being unreal, the unreality of it. And so what's happened is people like Freud and other very powerful intellectuals in our society have increasingly said, what is guilt? How can we have this feeling that we have called guilt? Well, it's because religious people, particularly these people who believe in the Bible, Christians, say that there's a God and this God has a law over you and when you fail this moral law, you are a substandard human being. Something's wrong with you. And there's shame and this thing upon you, it's an objective factor. You have failed the law and you're guilty. And this you so first it's an objective point. That's what these Christians say. And then there's also a kind of subjective expression, which is in your heart, in your mind, you feel it too. Right? So that inside of you, human beings, we have this conscience. And this conscience says that we're supposed to be what's right and what's wrong. And when you fail what's right, well, what's right, the law of what's right, your conscience will tell you you're guilty and that you will condemn you and tell you you're below, you're below par. And throughout the last hundred years or so, very powerful forces in our society said, you know, we have this overactive conscience. And this conscience is telling us that we're guilty and making us feel bad about ourselves. But this whole issue of guilt isn't real. It's not real because we're not even sure if God is real. And, and if there is such a thing as an absolute law standard over us, therefore, you know, we're not even sure what this is. And so over what's happened in our society is people aren't sure if guilt is real, but we do know that it makes us feel very bad. And so what people do is they go to a, a psychologist or a therapist, and what, they're, and what the therapists are not interested in is not guilt, what they're in, in, in the sense of moral guilt before God, but what they're interested in is health, psychological health. And if we can get some kind of balance in this, guilt is a problem. And what we need to do is get over this thing, and if you can get your mind to feel better about yourself, there can be a balance in you. So guilt isn't an objective thing, it's an unreal thing. That's number one. And he says our society has very much swallowed this and believes this, and I think many of us have. That includes people in the church, by the way. I think many people, even in the church, have doubts whether guilt is real or it's just some kind of a hang-up that we have inside of us. The second thing that William McClay says that's going on in us is he calls it the infinite extensibility of guilt. That's what he calls it. The infinite extensibility of guilt. So what is he saying there? He's saying guilt. We've been extending guilt into all kinds of realms and places. It's like guilt is everywhere. And what he has noticed is in our modern society, we have learned many things. We have, uh, you know, some people were so much more knowledgeable with science and history and education. We know so much more about so many things. And because we, we have so much more knowledge, we have so much more power over our lives. Now, you guys watching that movie Spider-Man? Right? You have watched that movie Spider-Man? And in that movie Spider-Man, it says, with greater power comes what? Greater responsibility, right? And what William McClay says is, because we know so much more, we have so much more power over our life. And because we have so much more power over our life, guess what? 
we have more guilt in our life. We have greater responsibility in our life. And we're failing more and more responsibilities because we have more power. And therefore, there's greater guilt in our life. He points out something else. The world is becoming a much smaller place. The world, we know so much more about the things that are going on in the world and and how the world is so much more interconnected through global economy and through science and knowledge. And so things that, like, there's, you didn't feel connected to people all around the world. Now, you, because you can see this on TV, you can watch the program of the starving child in Africa. And you know all it takes for you to do is go on the Internet, punch in a few numbers onto a website, and boom, money can go to some organization. And that kid who's starving on TV, you can help him. You actually have some power and potential responsibility to help this starving child. And now that TV program can make you feel the guilt of the fact that you're failing to care for poor people on the other side of the planet. Extensible guilt. Guilt is extending. Have any of you guys ever watched that documentary about the way uh, the world, the, the earth is, there's global warming around the earth? You know, I know global warming is kind of a controversial subject in certain circles. But you guys ever watch that? They say that the, the earth is warming and the Arctic, the Arctic ice cap is melting. And then if you watch this, there's one famous documentary where there's this polar bear. And this is uh, this, the, the, the ice is melting away. And so the polar bear's living habitat is effectively disappearing. And they have this picture of this polar bear you know, they took a, a helicopter and, and showed this polar bear and he's swimming in the water and you can see him start to drown and die. And what is that supposed to, what, what, what is the message of this documentary? You watch this thing on TV, something that's happening way up north we could never have had any um, knowledge of or seen before, but now you can actually watch a movie of a polar bear drowning and what happens inside of you? You're responsible. You have a carbon footprint. You rich capitalist people living here on this earth, putting all kinds of carbon gases into the earth, and now you have a guilt and a responsibility for the habitats of the polar bear that's happening. So you believe this? I think it's true. Just one more quick example. More knowledge. This guilt extending all over the place. You know... Um, some of your parents, or some of you know we want to be parents, you, I don't know if you guys know this, but parents feel guilty all the time this, these days. Why? Because there's so much more knowledge that we have about the way children should be treated, about the, what makes children thrive, and about you know, how, they, how they ought to be handled and, and the way they ought to be taught. And so if you're not doing all of these various kinds of things, if you're not playing Mozart for your child, your child won't get you know, more brain connections in their neural network and they won't be as smart. Right? If, you, if you yell at your child in certain kinds of ways, you can damage their self-esteem. It goes right to even before the child is born. There's all these studies out now that if a woman is stressed while, she has the, uh, while she's pregnant, that it can actually change the very personality of the child. Because she was stressed, right? or because she's not eating properly. And so now there's a tremendous na- amount of law and standard that's on all of us. Now think about this. On the one hand, 
modern man says all this guilt is this kind of, it's a deep psychological hang-up. And if we can take God and all the law and his standards out of it, then we'll be free. We now have the knowledge. Now we have the power. Now we have the, the understanding and the wisdom to shape our own lives, and we don't need a Lord over us. We can be our own Lord, right? And if you can be your own Lord, aren't you really free? Freedom. That's like the deepest freedom you can have. I'm my own Lord. Nobody tells me what to do. I even can pick my own standards. So we have in our society this very relativistic notion that there isn't an absolute moral standard anymore, that we can actually even pick our own standards, and we're so free. And yet, are we really free from this problem of guilt? It's secular man that's making you feel guilt. It's secular wisdom that's now... Guilt is everywhere. It's crazy, isn't it? And so all oh, there's so many different ways you can feel that you are under the yoke, under the boot, on your neck, that you aren't making the grade. You aren't in making the standard. I think William McClay is really onto something, right? And he thinks something about these two things, they're connected. Unreality of guilt, just because we think we, we declare that guilt is not really from God, that there's still this revenge thing that comes along. It's still everywhere, though. That's my first point in this message. Now, the relevance of this passage. In this second passage point in my message, I'd like to talk about this passage. What does this passage have to say? If you really think about what William McClay is saying, it is a terrible thing saying. I mean, it is terrible. That means every day you wake up, it is impossible for you to not feel enslaved under some standard and feel what this passage is talking about, a condemnation of being guilty for not being good enough in all kinds of various ways. As a parent, the way you handle your money, whether as an environmental, whether you recycle, the way you talk to your kids. I mean, just it's everywhere. Okay. And what does this passage have to say? Hear it. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Do you hear that? you believe that? I think there's a lot of people who grew up in the church. They've been taught this, but they don't really believe it. You know, this is one of my very favorite passages in the Bible. <laughs> um, I grew up in a Christian home, and my parents taught me to do right. I have a pretty strong conscience, and I think that's a good thing to have a strong conscience. But there is something powerful about this. And, you know, over time, like, if there's everything about this, your conscience can, can break you too if it becomes enslaved, right? But here it says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Verse 2, why? How is that the case? It says, for the law of the spirit of life has what? set you free, set you free. You were in captivity. You were in enslavement before. But now there is a law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from what? From the law of sin and death. Now let me uh, try to help you understand this passage here. Paul is not always easy to understand, as maybe some of you understand. Um, 
And there's lots of passages in the Bible. To be honest with you, I don't think you need to go to seminary to understand it. I mean, any average person who's literate could pick it up and understand exactly what it says. But there are some passages that it does be helpful. (laughs) Some, Some guy went off to seminary and was trained, and this is one of those passages, right? And Paul does a couple things here, which I think make him tricky to understand. But if you can understand what he's saying, it's very, think very tremendous. Now, here are the way he uses the word law. The law of the spirit of life. Isn't that an interesting phrase, right? Has set you free from the law of sin and death. Now, usually when we hear the word law, law means what? A set of rules, a set of commands that we, that we're, that we're, uh, that we have to obey and that, this, that, that we are now beholden to. That's what the word law means. And what Paul likes to do sometimes is he takes something that we are very familiar with, but then he will use that word in a kind of double meaning. And he'll show us something deeper about God by using this word in this double meaning. So when he uses the word law here, he doesn't just mean the commands, the laws and the rules. That's not what he means. Otherwise, it would mean for the rules of the spirit of life has set you free. And you're like, really? Has it? That's not, that's not what he's saying. When something has a law over you and you must obey it, doesn't it rule over you? Doesn't it reign over you? Doesn't it have a power over you? And that's what Paul is saying here. He's using the word to mean that there is a law, there's a reign, there's a power. When there's a law, which has a law over you. And isn't that true? If you want to be a very pretty person, there's a law of the things that you have to do to make yourself look good. And if you don't obey those laws, <laughs> then you will be ugly, right? And hence, the law rules. It reigns over you, right? Let me, let me try reading this verse a little bit differently. Let me translate this for you. For the reign of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the reign of sin and death. That's what Paul is saying. That's one. He uses the word law in a, in a tricky way. He also uses another word in a tricky way. And some of you already know about this. If you come to our church for a little while, you'll know that I, I regularly teach this. Paul uses the word flesh in this kind of odd, twofold way. Right? What is flesh? We all know what flesh is. It's, it's, it's our meat. Right? It's our physicality. What's flesh? It's the meat. It's the meat of us. Right? But when he's using the word flesh here, that's not what he means. He doesn't just the physicality. If you are living in the physicality, he, he makes a contrast in this passage between living in the spirit versus living in the flesh. But by flesh, he doesn't just mean our meatiness. For Paul, if you are living in the flesh, you are living as if you are meat. What does, it live, what does flesh mean? If you are meat without the spirit, without soul, without eternity. If you are living as if, who is God and his wisdom and his ways and his spirit and his presence is not with you, then you are living as if you are just pretty much physicality and meat alone. And if that is the case, he's saying you are living under the reign of sin and death and guilt and condemnation. You are dying. You are living a life which is really a death. That's what he's saying. And let me put put this out now. Let's get this back to the subject of freedom. Is not the modern understanding of freedom the very essence of what Paul means by flesh? 
Think about it. We don't need God's word, his revelation. We don't need his wisdom. We don't need the Savior that he sends and whatever he did on the cross. And we don't need his spirit. All we need is our standards. And I will be the Lord of my own life, my own master. And I will have my own wisdom and I will make my own money and I will make my own rules. That is as fleshly as Paul could possibly imagine. He would say, all you moderns and the way you're trying to live freedom, that is flesh. And he would say, you are in serious delusional trouble. Because what Paul would say is what we call freedom is he would say that is death and enslavement. Oh my goodness. This thing, if you are going to live on your own wisdom, truly in the flesh, you are now going to pay for it. And that's one of the reasons why I think he would come in, I think he would read William Clay's essay and go, oh, of course, of course, there's going to be guilt and condemnation all over the place because if you live in the flesh, there's nothing but guilt and condemnation. Because all along, human beings seeking to keep a law, to make a righteousness on their own bearing and on their own wisdom, on their own freedom, on the flesh, there'll be nothing but guilt and condemnation and it will be without remedy and irremediable guilt. Paul would say, absolutely. Okay. Wow. Isn't that depressing? And uh, if you've been coming to our church sometimes, you go, Pastor, you like to tell us how terrible sin is. And, you know, regularly you come in and you show us how terrible it is. But this one's really bad. And I would have to say, this is, I think, one of the worst. Because what this passage is saying to us, and what William Clay at least has some glimpse of, and this guy's an expert in humanities. He has read all the important books. He's read all the important, all the important philosophers and literature throughout Western history. And he has concluded we have a very, very deep and serious problem. That we took God out of the picture and we became free and now we're shackled into a guilt that's all over the place. Condemnation's everywhere. And the only answer is here. And how do we get out of this? Now, I'm going, to get you, I'm going to tell you the good news about Jesus in just a moment. In order to get in this, let me ask you this. Uh, let me see if I can point this out a little bit. Have any of you guys ever watched the movie uh, uh, The Long Kiss Goodnight? Oh, one person. Anyone else seen that movie? It's, a, it's one of these silly action movies back in the 90s, right? And every now and then, this action flick comes on TV. It comes on, it's typically TBS, I guess... Uh, the Turner Network has, has the rights over this movie, and they like to show this movie every now and then. Um, and let me tell you a little bit about this movie, right? The Long Kiss Goodnight stars Gina Davis, and Gina Davis, at least in her prime, was one of the beautiful women of Hollywood. And for whatever reason, they tried to make her into an action star in this movie, okay? And The Long Kiss Goodnight is about this woman named Samantha. And Samantha is a very nice, kind, virtuous woman who lives in a small town in Pennsylvania, and she's a school teacher. Okay? She, makes, she bakes cookies, and she rebukes small children for smoking, and uh, she has a really nice boyfriend, and she somehow, but as the story unfurls, right? I mean, you know, I'm not trying to recommend this movie to you, um, because it's not, probably not a great movie, and it's a silly action movie, but the part that I find very interesting is... The central dilemma in her life 
is that she has amnesia. And now she doesn't remember who she is. And somehow she woke up one day and she was pregnant. And she is now trying to be a good mom. And she has a job as a school teacher and living a really nice, happy life with her nice boyfriend, who's a great guy, right? Living in this very kind of community-oriented small town. And Samantha's living a good life. What happens, though, in the middle of the movie is she hits her head, and then she starts to remember things. And bits of her old life start to come crashing into the movie. And what you find out, what she begins to find out, is that her old life, is that she's something crazy and far-fetched, is that she is a super assassin, right? For the, for the government, apparently. She's like, you guys have seen the Bourne identity? That's a little bit more famous, more recent. She's like... A female Jason Bourne. I mean, she she's super duper. I mean, she can take like you know like little scissors and kill people across the room or something like this, right? And but she lived this very hard life. And as the movie unfurls, her old person was whose name was actually Charlie. Charlie starts to come back, and she's Charlie was nothing like Samantha. <laughs> Charlie was hard drinking and sleeps around with men and she kills people without a thought and she's very good at it, right? And Charlie lives in a web of corruption. He's like evil governmental agencies killing people with their evil plots and she lives in that world and that's what this movie portrays and, and um, it's kind of funny because Every time I see that movie on TV, for some, for some reason, I'm kind of drawn to see this movie. I don't watch the whole thing. I watch parts of it. And in prepping for this sermon, I, kind, I came to finally realize why I'm interested in this movie. What's interesting about this movie is that there is an inner battle for her. And, you know, there's all this crazy action, you know, which is silly. But the thing at the end of the movie is, this, the question is, will Samantha... Will she be Samantha or will she be Charlie? Who will she be? And what's going on in the movie is, when she is Samantha, do you know what's happening to her? A, a particular law reigns over her. She has something that reigns over her. It's a different spirit that reigns over her when she's living in small town Pennsylvania. And when she is Charlie, killing people, even for fun in some ways, a different law reigns over her that's, that she serves. And that movie, which has pretty much you know, nothing to do with Jesus, at least consciously in Hollywood, that movie is playing out the drama that's in all of us. Right? What law will reign over you? What power will you serve? And whatever that is, will shape you, make you, it'll change you, it'll shape you to be the person that it is. And you know what the Bible says here? The Bible says there can be a new law that comes over you. And it's not rules. Because it explicitly says in this text that what the law could not do, and there in that verse, in that verse the law means the commandments of God. What the commandments of God could not do because of our flesh, because of our pride and our wisdom, because of the way we think we're going to be so wise and so righteous, and the way we think we're going to keep God, because it actually makes the commandments of God not work. And that's true. Some people come to church and they think, what do you get at church? 
You get the guilt. That's what's good. <laughs> you get the right rules and the right standards and the right commandments, and that helps you to be a good person. And a lot of people think that's what church is about. That's what religion is for. Right? But actually, this passage explicitly says the law cannot actually free you and change you into a person. What there needs to be is this strange thing, a law of the Spirit, a reign of the Spirit of life. Verse 11. Let me go over verse 11 with you. It says this. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal body through His Spirit that dwells in you. I don't know if you guys see this. That's a very profound verse. That, the, all of the trini, Trinity is there. He who, he who raised Jesus from the dead, who is that? That's God the Father. God the Father who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will put His Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, into you. That's what that verse is saying. All of the Godhead, Father, Son, His Holy Spirit, is active to give you this new life. That's what it's saying. Christ came and He condemned sin and He condemned all our failing so that He can condemn the condemnation. He can drain us of the condemnation. But you know, that's, the, that's Christ achieved by His righteous life so that the condemnation can be gone on the cross. He see that. But as a boy, you know, I was taught this. I was taught this as a boy and as a young man, I taught this and I was like, that is great. And it's tremendously great news, is it not? That when we stand before God under his laws, that Jesus has drained away the condemnation by his righteousness, which is now upon us for all those who believe in him. And I was like, that is great. And I felt so free that God would forgive me and drain condemnation from me. But you know, there's more to it than that. I, I would still then go to church the very next day, for the next week, and... And then I would hear the, the, the things that are expected of Christians. And you know what I would hear? I would hear the rules, the law of God, the rules. And then I was saying, how to be a Christian? I've got, I've got to try the best I can to be good and follow the, the, the commandments, the rules. And then the very next day on Monday, I would seek to follow the commandments. And then I would fail them. And then I would feel the guilt and condemnation all over again. You know what this passage is saying? This passage is saying, yes, Jesus has taken away your guilt and condemnation by his atoning work on the cross, but it's actually giving you more than that. It's giving you more than that. Verse 11 says that the Father himself puts the very Spirit of Christ into you. And think about this. Verse 2 says that there's a law, a reign of the Spirit of God over you. You know, if there's a rule that, ans- that you have to answer to, to be, you know, to be a substantive, to be a competent human being, there's always a fear of condemnation and of failure and of guilt. But what if there's no more rule that will shape you, but now there's a reign of a person? And when you go to this person, the Holy Spirit will always take you to Christ and point you to the fact that all guilt that 
rises up in you, dies with Jesus. And all of your failure that rises up in you that makes you feel condemned, that that's just washed away and gone. And that when you go to a person, the person, that love, that acceptance, that security, in a person, your security can be absolute. So that God isn't just saying, now try hard on this earth, try to follow me, right? I did something great for you on the cross and now you're going to follow me. He'll say, no, no, no. All of my Godhead will come upon you and be with you. And every single day when you feel that condemnation and loss and guilt, I will put myself as your absolute security and safety in you and on you. And only then can you be free on the inside? Because it's not all about, it will no longer be about performance and no longer be about you because you're already just absolutely secure and safe. This is the only way. <laughs> Wilfred McClay studied it all. If you seek a freedom, if you seek to remedy all guilt and condemnation on law, on yourself, you're walking under the law of sin and death. Come to Jesus and let God rain on you a garland of grace, a person, a Holy Spirit who places in you absolute security and safety. This is the good news. Let's pray. Lord, um, last week I talked about this picture my children, if they're them sitting around, swinging their arms and their legs, utterly unconcerned about, about performing or being a good person, just self-forgetfulness and gladness to be secure in the home under the love of mom and dad. But Lord, we need your house. And we need your cross. And we need you, Father, to place on us a garland of grace that grace which is not just an idea, but which is your spirit itself. To be in us and to condemn condemnation, to drain away all guilt and to free us from the accusations of our own mind, from Satan speak to us in our own mind and you speaking to us pure security and absolute acceptance. Lord, bless us in this way. Help my brothers and sisters to see the reality of the Holy Spirit. And if there's anybody here who does not have the Spirit of God in them, I pray they would go to Jesus and trust in the redemptive work of Jesus and receive your Spirit. Lord, I pray that you would sow in us deep freedom into all the members of this church. It would show forth in how we relate to each other, in the gladness that we have. And it would shine as a light to our city and all those around us. Exalt Jesus, Lord, and the freedom that he has won for us. In his name we pray.